0: Thanks for joining us on KVCR for a special one hour edition of KVC Arts, celebrating KVC Arts number 500. Tonight, presenting a different side and a different sound of Al Petrelli. We generally hear from him talking about the current tour of Trans Siberian Orchestra. He's musical director and one of the lead guitarists. Now, every time we speak, most of the program is TSO. And then with the time remaining, we get a glimpse of one facet or another of Petrelli's long and varied career. Coming up is work with Asia, Dee Snyder from Twisted Sister, as well as Alice Cooper. First, though, one more from the CPR release. Randy Coven, Al Petrelli, and John O'Reilly with one by Petrelli, a piece called Monday. Monday, and this one will take a little bit of build-up. Part of it is for the listener, and part of it is for you. This one is one that just builds and builds and builds and then resolves and then trickles down. And this part may surprise you to hear, but well, have you by chance read Steve Vai's intro or forward to Steve Lukather's The Gospel According to Luke?
1: I have, yeah. Okay, I have okay. Book, uh, right behind my couch in my bookcase.
0: Ah, sweet. For the listeners then, Vai talks about not long after moving to L.A., getting this cassette of somebody playing at the baked potato in a jam session setting, and everything he heard was not only perfect but to unfairly truncate his story— Revealed what he heard on that cassette to become the blueprint for how a solo should be And what he tries to accomplish And this is, my God, Steve Vai saying this And he found out later that it was Steve Lukather that he was hearing All this to say that your tune Monday follows that blueprint And is to me what Lukather's playing was to Vai
1: Oh, thank you. So that's listen to put me in night company in any regard is greatly appreciated.
2: <laughs> well, absolutely.
1: Um, the song and I don't remember exactly, but I remember just coming up with a set of chords. Randy Coven and I were doing a clinic with O'Reilly at the time. I remember he wanted to jam on something and there's a very famous story that Steve Vai and Joe Satriani performed together at one of the Nam shows, but it was the Nam show in Chicago, and I'm going to say, like, I don't know, the late 80s, 86, 87, 88, right? Okay. And I think Randy was playing bass with them, and they came out and they did this beautiful jam session, and it was the first time those two had ever played together in however long, you know, oh, since Steve yeah. was taking guitar lessons, right? Anyway, so he's telling me the story, and I was like, where'd they come up with that bit? And Vi looked at Satriani, or Satriani looked at Vi and they said, Lydian? And they just both mm-hmm. nodded and smiled, and that's what they did, right? Yeah. So they go, get out of here, really? I said, all right, and I kind of took that, and I said, all right, I'm just messing around with this. I think, you know, like a D major 7 sharp 11 thing to an F sharp minor or some inversion like that. And I kept hearing this melody kind of running through my head. And at the same time, I'd always remembered that I absolutely fell in love with, I think was the first Dixie Dregs album called oh, wow. uh, What If, okay. right? And there's a song on it, maybe it's called Odyssey, maybe it's called Night Meets Light. But it's this crazy over-the-top fusion thing, and it breaks down to this incredibly beautiful Steve Morse acoustic guitar, and I think the violin player on that record is a guy named Alan Sloan. And just the most haunting melody i'd ever heard in my life and the way that the violin screamed through this acoustic track and then it would on a dime flip back to this over the top crazy fusion piece and i always remember like you know there were sections and odd time signatures oh, okay okay but morse had an incredible knack for always keeping a melody running if it was in 11 if it was in seven if it was five if it didn't matter the melody always came first and it just happened to be in an odd meter so i was kind of like going through this really weird section of chords and Meter, And I was asking O'Reilly, you know, do like what Omar Hakim would do, like, you know, play over the bar line. You know, he's like, well, as soon as I figure out where the bar line is, because it's like <laughs> a bar, three bars. So, eh. But I remember just like kind of like just orchestrating what I thought was just going to be a chordal section. And then it was my turn to play. And it was one of those things that I closed my eyes, pull, or if you know, hit the record button, and John Sticks was sitting off my left shoulder. And I remember just like grabbing a melody and running with it, and when I finished, John Sticks looked at me and he goes, I've interviewed every guitar player on the planet. He goes, i got two things to say to you. You're the most famous unknown guitar player ever, mm. and you're one of the best ballad players I've ever heard in my life. And I, oh and I was like, alright cool, that was a pretty good moment. <laughs> you know? yeah. And every so often, one of my students or somebody will bring up that song Monday and I'll listen to it and i go, yeah. Yeah, everything about that was kind of cool, I, and I really did enjoy having that conversation with whomever I was having it with. You know, I think it was called Monday because my dad died on a Monday a bunch uh-huh. of years prior, so maybe I was having kind of like, I don't know, one of those kind. of I don't want to get too deep on that side of things, but sure. it's interesting, and I don't want to kind of like go off topic too quick, but when I was doing the demos for the Hey Stupid record with Cooper,
0: oh, right, right. right.
1: And I remember working at the producer's name was a great, great songwriter named Desmond Child. Oh, wow. Okay. And I remember like Desmond was giving me a bunch of lip during the sessions and like <laughs> kind of went at each other a little bit and basically was like, you know, what's up? What's your problem? And he looks at me and he goes, you know, if you would just drop that New York bravado or that <laughs> Brooklyn Italian chest pounding on am a tough little guy thing and learn how to be vulnerable when you're playing, you could accomplish amazing things. And I went, All right, you got my attention. Okay, what's up? He goes, you have to be okay with, like, digging into your past, your pain, your heartbreak, or your jubilance, whatever it is, whatever emotion that you got locked away somewhere. When it's time for you to bring your art form to the table, you have to be strong enough and mature enough to be vulnerable and let the world see that. And then you can compartmentalize it and put it away. And I remember that was a big game changer for me, too. And that was about a year before we recorded that CPR record. Mm -hmm. Uh, And I remember, you know, like, being vulnerable, being intimate, being, like, able to expose like a darkness about yourself that took a couple minutes to get used to and explore but that was certainly like one of the first documented moments that that occurred where i just dug into a place where i hadn't gone before and i remember everybody with the exception of john Six was pretty much silent at the end of that take and went you know dude that was beautiful yeah. you know yeah. and i'm glad it made its tape you know and i'm glad it exists in the world
0: oh absolutely and it's one that i will listen to just you know repeatedly trying to decide if it should be taken as something with several movements or as something with several slightly unexpected turns which continue this beautiful build in an atypical fashion. But it's just one that I love and I've latched onto it. Thank so you. Oh, absolutely. It stands out. And there's so many great tunes on here, Collective Works and yours and, and yours and Randy's, whatever. Alice Cooper talking about, again, what he was accomplishing on stage and this taking you in a direction later. On the album Trash, there is a bit of an intro to Poison, the huge, huge hit Poison, but it's more like this synthesized variable tone blending in with the guitar feedback, and all crescendos in like nine seconds before we get the downbeat. I want to hear about the live Alice Cooper Trash is the World. Your beautiful, soulful, searing intro. And now that I've built it up like that, I have to ask, was this really a moment for Alice to catch his breath or more like Alice saying we need a good segue, man? You know the moment. Probably a little bit of both. Yeah? A little
1: bit of both. That would have been, if I'm not mistaken, that was the song that was taking us out of the theatrical portion of the show, and it was, you know, back to the catalog. And then, you know, he won, of course, this is the era of guitar solos, which, I mean, I was always like, I'm not doing one of these things, dude. I can't, I'm not, <laughs> how do you outshred, like, King Edward, or who met, like, you know, like, Yngwie and all these people that are standing there just, like, like crushing it. I'm like, uh, uh-uh, not me, you know. So I was always a huge Gary Moore fan.
0: Yeah, okay, then Lizzie there.
1: Yeah, yeah, I mean, in Thin Lizzy, and then when he went on to all his solo stuff, I mean, again, Jeff Beck and Gary Moore, two of my biggest dicky bets when I was a kid, Jeff Beck and Gary Moore, you know, like just the melodies, their phrasing, how they can, you know, ballads, you know, great, great, amazing ballad players, very great storytellers with their guitar. Anyway, so I looked at the keyboard player, my buddy Derek Sherinian, and Derek and I went to college together for a little while, and we played a lot of Jeff Beck together and listened to a lot of Gary Moore, and you know. I said, I got an idea, let's, instead of a guitar solo, let's come up with like this kind of thematic portion of the show where at least I'll get to stretch out and play a little bit, but I need to play a melody. I need to have some sort of structure. And again, you know, I've always approached guitar playing like I just wanna, I'm writing a song within the song. You know, I'm always gonna try to be a songwriter, whether it's a song or just a guitar part. And I said, Derek, you know, play this series of changes. And again, going back to a uh, Lydian tonality. So I said, just give me like a B, a B flat, major nine chord, whatever. And I did the math in my head, not literally, but, you know, I'm playing in the key of D minor over a B flat chord, which is creating a tension. And I remember, you know, Cooper said, that's kind of cool, why don't you keep working on that? And he goes, and I want to start that portion of the show off with Poison. And I said, oh, I got this for you. So I was just going through, going through, going through it, and then it was such an important riff. And I was like, I'm gonna foreshadow that riff, and like, let's see if the audience kind of gets it. And basically, I was just like thinking of how to be smart and how to be clever, and again, how to serve the song. Such a big hit for Alice, you know. And when I did that, I do it once or twice, and the audience would really light up in anticipation to the next song coming. Because I just wanted to foreshadow that riff and get the hell out of there.
2: You
1: know? <laughs> I'm like really uncomfortable with that whole like solo guitar thing. Just not for me. <laughs>
0: People have posted just this section of that concert on YouTube saying, just simply, the reason I play guitar. Your solo right there, and people making that kind of statement, so that's just, I don't know, beautiful.
1: It is beautiful. And you know what, to answer, listen, thank you so much, and for anybody who does feel that way, I appreciate it greatly. But even the young lady who's been with Cooper for a long time, Nita Strauss?
0: Yes, yeah, from, uh, she went the on Iron saying That's
1: like one of her favorite things ever as well. And, you know, it was just really nice to hear, like, a younger generation guitar player listen to that, you know, and just get it. And then that means everything to me. If there's something that I have done work-wise that people, like, look at, you know, you talk about 30-something years later and go, yeah, man, that was really awesome and still is. I'm like, all right, cool, mission accomplished then. Absolutely. Because it was just like a basic guitar solo. You know, God bless guys who can do that. Not me. <laughs> I ain't that good, you know. <laughs> but I did want to write a piece of music to precede Alice's wonderful, wonderful work on Poison.
0: Oh, my God, yeah.
1: Yeah. I hear you calling and
2: it's tears and pins and pins. I want to bet you just to hear you. Screaming by the man who will touch you, but you're running.
0: David Fleming in conversation with Al Petrelli, musical director for and one of the lead guitarists with Trans Siberian Orchestra. Though, in celebration of KVC Arts number 500, we're hearing about everything but TSO. With all the bands you've played with, I'd imagine some were, hey they're looking for a guitarist, while others were like, oh my god, I get to play with Alice Cooper, or in a band fronted by Dee Snyder." This Mr. was Dee Snyder's band after his band Desperado, which was the one after Twisted Sister. Did you join Widowmaker as an existing band? He was trying to round it out and still needed a guitar player? Or were you there from the ground floor and the actual startup?
1: Both, actually. He had the band, he had the lineup, and then the guitar player. Something came up where he's like, you know, I can't record. I don't know if he had a health issue, I don't know what the heck was going on. But this is, again, the time where D was floating around Cove City Studios, you know, with Rick Wake producing, and I was doing a lot of these other things that I had just gotten done with Cooper not too long after that. And he goes, listen, I need a guitar player to at least start this record with me. Rick Wake and Dave Barrett said, well, Al's in the next room. I remember just, you know, like, he's explaining what he wanted to do, and I said, yeah, God, it'd be an honor, dude. Again, another guy from Long Island who made it big, you know? So, I mean. All of a sudden I'm with Alice Cooper and then like another huge rock star singer, front band. Like this guy, I used to go see him in clubs when I was a kid, you know. And he had a bunch of songs written and, you know, I was like, okay, I'll go to New Zealand, let's record this, it's fine. And he goes, well, you got any ideas? And I said, well, yeah, I do got a couple, you want to hear them? And I remember like sitting down with him playing him like the title track, The Widowmaker. Yeah. And he was like, that's kind of cool. So, you know, I just, here's the rhythm guitar idea, and he'd go home or wherever he'd go, and he'd come back with, like, this great melody and these great lyrics, and, you know, there was a couple things like that, and we just developed a really good relationship, and the guitar player never came back. Mm. (laughs) I don't know what the hell happened to him. And the record came out, did pretty good, all things considered. You know, you think about the era that it came out, when the whole Seattle movement, that was the next big thing, and, like, bands from the 80s, that was over, you know? but he just wanted to write good music. He wasn't gonna jump onto the Seattle train and write those type of songs that would have been real fraudulent to him. So he kept to what he does, you know? Talk about learning a lot about life, driving around. You know, when you're back in the clubs, and you know, I'm driving the van and D's riding shotgun or vice versa. We're like talking until four o'clock in the morning about just stuff, you know. Mm. You know, it's a humbling experience. It was a very big part of my education. But yeah, I think I started in kind of like as a substitute and ended up never leaving. He couldn't get rid of me for a while.
0: Connected to D Snyder, if you could at least give a brief mention of what and when Van Helsing's curse was.
1: So Trans-Siberian Orchestra was starting to kind of like build up a good head of steam and you know it kind of was starting to become synonymous with Christmas time and like you know rock and roll holiday stuff and you know and he's like again one of those guys always think always think and so he had contacted me I'm going to say maybe an 02 or 03 I don't remember exactly about how about a rock and roll version for Halloween I said okay you know and we went into the studio and, you know, I had some ideas. I think this is just after Megadeth. I was still greatly involved with TSO, but I had taken that little bit of time off after the 99 tour before 2001, when I came back to be Paul's musical director. And I said, yeah, that sounds kind of cool. And I remember going in and, and like scratching my head and saying, well, you know, here's an idea, I'm like The Exorcist theme, but let me do it how Mustaine maybe would have interpreted it. You oh, know, wow. And kind of, you know, that kind of guitar riff going on underneath <laughs> in an odd meter.
0: The Angry and, Exorcist.
1: Yeah, 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 exactly and you know there's a couple other things like that and then i remember thinking this is getting a little too close to home for me this is getting a little uncomfortable it started to become a little too tso and i remember telling the at some point it's like you know what my loyalty will always and it always has been with paul O'Neill, and this is starting to kind of really paul's looking at me a little cross-eyed i'm feeling a little like i'm cheating on my wife kind of thing mm-hmm. so i wish you the best good luck i gotta walk
0: yeah. okay When I said phrase a few moments ago, and I truly meant phrase as opposed to, say, a riff. A riff can and should be cool, but I think a phrase takes it further. I'm not sure if I've ever really reasoned that out before, that maybe a riff is the expression of emotion, and then the phrase is the articulation within that emotion.
1: Or the connective structure between the riffs, you know? Mm. Okay, so case in point, so after we last spoke... I don't know what, maybe we touched upon this, maybe we didn't, but I started listening back to the old Heavy Weather Album by Weather Report.
2: Oh, cool, right? cool.
1: And I, because there was a documentary on, I think, Netflix or Amazon about Wayne Shorter. And I hadn't listened to the Weather Report Album probably since I was in high school. You know, oh, maybe, wow. Maybe, you know, whatever year that would have come out. And I remember Jocko, you know, that was his introduction. Was, yeah. I really wasn't that familiar with Wayne Shorter or Joe Zawinul, but I loved the compositions, you know, Teen Town. Birdland, and certainly a a remark you made, right? You know, and I still teach, and I always try to be very analytical and try to dig deeper into music and vocabulary and what I call, you know, speaking clearer with the notes at hand. And I remember watching this documentary, and they were telling the backstory that was going on in Wayne Shorter's life and the passing of his daughter. Mm. And that was prior to his involvement in Weather Report. And I'm pretty sure I had the time on right, but I went back and listened to a remark you made, and his phrasing made more sense because of understanding the history behind it, what he had to say, because it was so sad and so mournful, but yet there was a certain level of like hopefulness to it, or you know, and I still am struggling with getting his phrasing and his melodies in my hands because they're not part of my DNA yet. You know what I mean? Right. So it was the connective lines. And his note selection, which tied together, and I'm not going to use the word riff in this, but maybe like the main themes of the main melodies, and the effortless and just a beautiful handoff between when he would take a line, hand it off to Jocko, hand it off to Zaunel, and then Wayne Shorter would get it back. I was like, that's a beautiful paragraph. Yeah. You know, I mean, what a wonderful story that these three dudes like effortlessly and seamlessly handed off. So I've always been one to try to say, okay, if the riff is the jumping off the diving board, if you will, right? Mm Mm-hmm. And then the conversation is between the diving board and when you hit the water. And then the other riff would be, okay, splash, (laughs) you know.
0: Oh, that's a cool way of putting it. I would love hearing the perspectives of this on you. And sometimes we're talking what could be, I don't know, people might be faced with deep theory at some point to understand, oh, that's the triad of the, you know, hey, it just sounds good. You know, sometimes that's all that matters, but that's cool.
1: On Instagram, which I'm not really a big social media person, but, you know, I just kind of scroll through and I stumble across other things. And I follow a guitar player, I'm sure you're aware of Joe Pass.
0: Oh, my God, yes.
1: I love it. Yes, yes. I mean. And, uh, you know, my hero as a child, you know, when I was exploring, you know, chord melodies and like that part of my jazz background, Joe Pass was it for me, you know. Anyway, yep. but they were interviewing him, and the woman said, you know, so how do you approach a 2-5? And he goes, what do you mean a 2-5? <laughs> He goes, like, you mean D minor to G7? She goes, yeah. He's like, I don't know. I just play. And he goes, whatever you do, do not ask me about modes. I know nothing about them. <laughs> you know? And I couldn't help but laugh because talk about a guy who learned his craft by listening to great players. And that's what I tell my students and I tell the people in the band all the time. If you really want to dig in and get great at something, well, emulate the ones who did it the best and tear their solos apart. And if you want to be mathematical and analytical and understand, you know, why the relationship of, you know, a D flat seven sharp nine chord works over a G seven, yeah, we can analyze the shit out of that together. You know, it's a flat five, a flat seven, and a thirteen. Yeah, you know, yeah, that's cool. But doing it the mathematical way first, yeah, you know, that's dangerous because I don't think you ever sound authentic or legit. You kind of sound a little bit more mathematical.
0: Wow, yeah, no, that's absolutely right And it's really cool that you bring up Pass It was cool that when I uh, spoke with Andy Timmons We spoke just as much about Barney Kessel And the great guitars Mm -hmm. lineup As we did his own work And so that's something that I really enjoyed with him But I also enjoy with you as well Branching off to Bernstein And then switching, you know, just full circle kind of thing You know, one of the other
1: Let me interrupt you one minute And I appreciate you saying that But, you know, the older I get The more obsessed I am with gathering more knowledge Yeah, you know. And, again, the Internet and the technology of our time, you know, there's a lot of bad to it, you know. It, like anything else, is good and bad. So I've tried to utilize the good portion of it. And I have available to me so many things that I normally wouldn't have. You know, I'm not a big, like, let me go to the library and research. You know, I just, I stumble upon something on Netflix. I stumble upon something on Amazon or something comes across on Instagram or whatever it is. And reading about Bernstein, rediscovering Joe Pass, and, again, his real name being Giuseppe Pasquale, a real good <laughs> Italian from, I think, the Bronx or Brooklyn or whatever. Yeah, your people. My peeps, you know. It allows me to dig deeper into other people's take or uh, how they perceived and performed and expressed music because my job in life is to do that same thing, and I love hearing, like, these pillars of the industry speak, and sometimes they'll say things that I've told my people before. I don't really need affirmation, but it's nice to have it on occasion. You know, so if you hear it from me, and then I quote Leonard Bernstein by saying a similar situation, people go, all right, well, you know, maybe he's not full (laughs) of shit."
0: Yeah, that's right. That's adding credence. ended up with Asia for a couple of albums there, Aqua, and then I think Aria. The thing on that one is really such a fanboy question, but my first question was, did you get to play with Jeff Downs, or was he more part of the subsequent tour than actually the album or albums?
1: No, 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 I got to play with those dudes. know, yeah. <laughs> that was awesome. So the long and the short of it is going back to Dave Barrett, you okay. know, at City Studios coming from England. He had a friend, I believe his name was Harry Cowell, I think. And they were talking to Dave. I think some of the dudes had seen me play over there with Cooper when we did Wembley or the NEC up in Birmingham. And they said, listen, we're doing this new Asia record, but we want to make it a bit more modern. And, you know, Steve Howe's playing on it, but... We want kind of a more modern rhythm guitar approach. So Dave said, Yeah, okay, you know, Al is your guy. So I remember him saying, You want to do an Asian record? I'm like, I mean, with Steve Howe, Jeff Downs, and Carl Palmer? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Please, you know, I mean, I grew up like, you know, like I was the biggest yes and ELP fan ever you know, and then even Downs, you know, in the Buggles, yes. you know, with I think, Trevor Horn. It was just like, you kidding, this is like rock and roll royalty, dude, no worries, I'm in. So anyway, I flew to London, and I remember working at AdVision Studios, legendary studio in London, and I remember just like, you know, plugging into a Marshall, let me hear the tracks, you know, Downs was very, very hands-on as far as making sure that the chords were proper. He, obviously, was an incredible keyboard player, you know, like a lot of voicings, is like, ooh, I gotta figure out how this is gonna lay on the guitar. And... I remember playing, not all, maybe I don't know, 80-90% of the rhythm guitars on the record. Okay. And then they said, you want to take a stab at a solo here? And I was Ooh. like, yeah, sure. So I played a solo on whatever song it was, and they kind of looked around and was like, you want to do another one? i was <laughs> like, okay, cool. And you know, and then the McHale was fine, and you know, it was getting late at night. We were just having a whole lot of fun. Next thing I know, they asked me if I'd want to come out and do some dates. And I'm like, uh, absolutely, yeah. this would be a blast. I mean, I get to play Heat of the Moment? Yes, yeah. only okay. time will tell. Soul Survivor, I think, yep, yep, like yep. all the songs off that first record that were huge. Right. And then, you know, they asked me to come in and do a second record and some dates after that. And I'm like, yeah, dude, count me in. This is fun. Wow.
0: You know what? There was another side note. And this gets into the players more than the music or songwriting. But I read that Simon Phillips came in for session work for this album. Would you have already laid down your tracks and then he comes in? Or again, yeah. did you <laughs> get to play with Simon?
1: By proxy, yes, we're on the same record okay. together, uh, but unfortunately, you know, I had done some tracks, I think there was like one or two songs, I don't know, that Cole Palmer did I really don't know what the heck happened, I just know that somebody programmed a drum machine just to get the thought of the song across, and I did my normal bag of tricks to it, and then it heard that Simon's coming in to play drums on it after the fact, I'm like, that's okay. awesome. Yeah. And just, okay, random side note, so, cool. I remember when I got to meet Steve Howe, he's very, 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 very standoffish from people. Mm-hmm. And, you know, me being me and not, <laughs> so. And I remember, like, after sitting down with the man for a lengthy period of time and, you know, a, a warm embrace or handshake afterwards, Jeff Down goes, he doesn't like anybody. Why does he like you so much? I'm like, I don't know. Oh, you know. Maybe, Yeah, yeah, I mean, because I remember, like, learning how to play Mood for a day as a kid or trying <laughs> to learn how to play it. Yep. You know, and, I'm like, oh, I get to sit in a room with this man. Nice.
0: Of course. Oh, my God. You're listening to a special edition of KVC Arts on 91.9 KVCR, also at kvcrnews.org. I'm David Fleming in conversation with Al Petrelli, celebrating KVC Arts number 500, exploring his career other than his work with Trans-Siberian Orchestra, which we hear about annually as TSO is getting ready for their winter tour with a stop in Ontario. Coming up, touching lightly on sabotage, some beautiful acoustic work here, also some of my favorite material involving Al that coming from a grouping with TSO pianist Jane Mangini called O'Toole. Right now, some more wonderful acoustic work from a project with only one release. Let's (laughs) Let's talk about <laughs> Morningwood. There's just no easy way of saying that. No, um, there ain't. We <laughs> did touch on Morningwood a few years ago, but since this is all about another side of Al Petrelli, please describe what and how this came to be. This would be somewhere circa 94-ish still.
1: Yeah, I think so. It was Tony Hornell, again, going back to Cove City Sound Studios and Rick Wake and Dave Barrett. They had done, I don't know which album it was, but TNT. Tony Arnell was the lead singer with Ronnie Letigro. I was a guitar player, and, you know, they'd be in one studio. I'd be recording in another studio, and, you know, you're in the lounge, just kind of hanging out, bullshit, and whatever. And I became good friends with Tony. And I don't know what happened at TNT or what the reason was, but, you know, Tony said one day, he goes, you know, so i got to finish a commitment to a Japanese record company, and i got to put a record together. Would you want to work on it with me? And I'm like, well, yeah, would you have money?" He goes, well, I don't have that much material written, but I really want to do like a kind of acoustic album. You know, he'd heard me play acoustic guitar a bunch, and he goes, you have a really different approach to playing acoustic, and I think we could have some fun together. I'm like, yeah, absolutely, dude. So, it was a great, great bass player named Danny Miranda, who ended up being in the lineup of Queen when Paul Rogers was in it.
0: Ah, okay. And again,
1: Danny, you know, just another you know guy from Long Island, that we were all hitting the clubs together and having fun, an incredible bass player, and a drummer named Chuck Bonfanti who was one of my closest friends, great drummer, he was in a band back in the 80s called Soraya, and then he decided to give up drumming and pursue his degree in law at some point, but this was, I think, right before that occurred, it was just a great rhythm section, and we were just coming up with cool ideas. Acoustic renditions of songs. I think we had written a couple songs for the record and I just remember having a blast doing that because playing acoustic guitar there's no hiding you know yeah. like you're not covering up a slop fest with extra distortion or something so you know and I was always a fan of acoustic guitar playing. It's a completely different instrument than the electric guitar and I was really proud of a lot of the things that were on that record. I don't think it ever saw the light of day but every so often I'll listen to you know one or two things and go like that was cool you know.
0: There's a really cool melding of uh, TNTs. Tonight I'm falling. Yeah, with that's what I'm doing. Yeah. 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 Crazy on you, so how did that rather drastic insertion come to be? Because it's not a medley, you do one, then go into the other, then full circle back to Tonight I'm Falling. Uh, Was that him, you?
1: (laughs) God, I don't remember whose idea it was. I'm (laughs) going to say I think it was mine, because there was a thing where we kind of went into this almost, I'm going to say Latin, but like, you know, set of changes at the end of Tonight I'm Falling. A real up-tempo really great pocket it was so much fun to solo over that and then when we came out of it I'm gonna say it was me who just came up with the downbeat to crazy on you by heart mm. you know because that same band certainly Danny the bass player myself and Tony were also like you know playing clubs doing acoustic sets having fun you know and listen back in the day if I was drunk enough at the end of the night I'd go into a song and they'd look at me and go okay <laughs> you, know? <laughs> and, you know and some of it worked but I always had a, I'm gonna say knack but If you make a left turn that people don't expect and it's a familiar left turn, it usually works and goes over quite well.
0: Okay, and if it doesn't, you repeat it three times and it sounds like it was on purpose.
1: Exactly.
0: Cool, okay. Was uh, Tony by chance the connection to you ended up playing on uh, Sonic Adventure soundtrack?
1: No, I don't even remember how that came to be. I think... That was a Japanese record company that I got hired to do record with Stephen Piercy back then.
0: Oh, my God, from Rats.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. There was this one-off project called, I think it was called Vertex, where they just wanted to put a bunch of people together and, you know, kick the tires on and see how it happened. And I think because of that, there was a connection made. And it was Corey Glover from Living Color ah. that actually got the phone call, too, to come out and do vocals on that. So oh, wow. I, I knew Corey from the day because I went to school with Will Calhoun long before Living Color. So, again, it really, what, you know... It's funny because everything that we're talking about always comes back to the old neighborhood in one way, shape, or form.
0: That's really, really cool. You're playing music and maybe even comparing where you can get the best slice and arguing about that.
1: But. Oh, yeah, and forget about it if you get into a conversation about like the Jets or the Giants or the Mets or the Yankees. <laughs> it's on.
0: Well, I'm a Bears fan. Well, okay, we'll just go elsewhere, but uh, okay. <laughs> Talking a bit about O'Toole, please. And the, the first thing sure. I need to say is that between O'Toole, Trans Siberian Orchestra, and not to mention Morning Wood, you've probably spent more than your fair share of interviews just addressing band names more than the music itself. So O'Toole, this is Jane Mangini and you. Jane plays piano and keys with Trans Siberian Orchestra West. Now, O'Toole, this is spelled yeah. O Apostrophe 2L. Who came up with that, please? <laughs>
1: Uh, So the long and the short of it is, I originally met Jane, she was a very, very successful jingle writer in New York City, Mm -hmm. okay, and we ended up getting hired to do some corporate date for somebody in the city, walked in the room, kind of wasn't paying attention to my surroundings, and heard somebody playing amazing piano, and looked up and it was Jane, I was like, okay, A, you play great, and God, are you cute, you know, (laughs) and we just hit it off from the jump. So... She started hiring me to play jingles in the city, and I'd go in. And, you know, like, she'd look at a piece of film and just write these incredible pieces of music. I'm like, girl, you're, like, kind of awesome at this. Mm. Anyway, so long and short, she was working for a jingle house in town called Bang Music, and the owner of the company was Lyle Greenfield. And he was a big ad agency guy and pretty clever marketer. So simultaneously, you know, as Jane and I's relationship developed, I said, I, I want to take like the songs that haven't gone to film for jingles, and I got to play them for a buddy of mine named Mark Wexler, who had just started up a label with Lee Rittenauer at Polygram. Oh, Club, cool. I think it was called I.E. And I sent Mark a CD of like just these thoughts that Jane had recorded, and he goes, this is like incredibly beautiful music. Let's do something together. So Jane being Jane, she's not going to call it Jane Mangini or Jane anything. And in the company of Lyle, who owns the Jingle House, he goes, well, what are you going to call this? And she goes, I don't know, but I want to be Irish and I want to be a boy. <laughs> Comma, she was a huge, huge fan of Peter O'Toole.
0: <laughs> there it is.
1: Okay. And there it is. So Lyle's not going to spell that O'Toole. So Lyle, very smart and clever, New York City businessman, said O oh, apostrophe 2L. You know, and that was when I realized how deep Jane's talents are, or at the time were, but still are, as a composer. I mean, the woman is really, really gifted with that stuff. Just sure. beautiful, beautiful pieces of music.
0: Yeah. We'll get to writers on the storm in a bit, but there's some things that have to lead up to that. I have the self titled release from, I think, 03 and Doyle's Brunch from 05, but I feel like there's a very elusive third Eat a Pickle, a nod to your <laughs> love of Dwayne and Dicky and the Allman Brothers. Yep. Does that actually exist anywhere, or is it just a series you know what? of tracks? I don't even
1: think it saw the light of day. Yeah. It started coming together, and that was a very tumultuous time in mine and Jane's relationship. That was kind of just okay. like preceding our unfortunate divorce. And it kind of just got fragmented, something that it was not I wasn't really as involved musically with it, and it was going in a direction that was just not happening. So that one kind of, you know, okay. took a bullet in the head.
0: All right, all right. Uh, looking at the self-titled release briefly, it stated that all songs written and arranged by Jane, but say on, well, this is the opening track: New York City, Dublin, New York City, especially after the Dublin part. Your solo. Uh, surely that wasn't written, but rather maybe notes of. Hey, Al, quote, uh, Phil here, A, A minor.
1: Sure. Again, Jane being Jane, she was kind of pretty accomplished, to say the least, at using Logic, you know, the recording software on the computer. Sure. So there were times where I would just go in and she'd say, like, just play a bunch of stuff right here for me. And I'd go, yeah, okay, whatever. And I'd come back like a couple hours later the next day, whatever, and she'd cut and paste it all over God's creation, <laughs> you
2: know. Okay. like.
1: Not really what I was thinking, girl, but this is your world, and I'm just a guest, so you have at it. So she has an amazing sample library and an amazing depth of the sounds, and she approached everything like that, even when it came to like, guitar parts. I'd play something, and maybe I think it was appropriate for the spot of the song, and she would go, uh-uh, and she's going to stick it somewhere else. Hmm. Yeah, very clever. She's very good at that kind of
0: thing. There's even a spot I actually ID'd it, but didn't really have anything built around it. I swear it's your guitar somewhere on Stormy Monday. That's the closing track to Doyle's Brunch. And it's just the sound of your guitar, but I swear it's pierced in the middle of it. So that would be a case of her taking your thing and moving it elsewhere.
1: Yeah, exactly.
0: On Dream River. This is on that disc. Is this by chance you on the trumpet? No, no, no. no okay, no, no. okay. He says with a laugh. Okay, okay.
1: <laughs> okay. No, again, Gave you know, when, when it came to like sampling, you know, she really again because she worked all by herself in Jingle World. She just knew how to come up with sounds. She'd find a sound and kind of morph it into what she needed. Could have been a drum loop. It could have been a horn. It could have been anything, you know. And I remember watching her do that. Kind of, I was like, wow, you're really cool with this, you know.
0: Gotcha. Looking at the liner notes on this, John O'Reilly, uh, he's the R in CPR, not the O. Mm-hmm. But on Doyle's Brunch, he's credited with paint cans, glass jars, tall tales, bongos, etc. And that mm-hmm. still it still just translates to percussion. But now you, also beyond guitars, you're credited with bass, banjo, studio construction, and cooking. Do you mind addressing those last two, please?
1: <laughs> God. Oh, okay. So the long and the short of it is... Uh... <sighs> Jade and I had moved up to a little town in Pennsylvania, in the mountains called Milford, Pennsylvania. Gorgeous little mountain community, we bought a house on a lake, that was like our weekend hang. Still had our place in New York City, post 9-11, not too long after that we decided to sell the joint and just make Pennsylvania our full-time residence and really didn't have a whole heck of a lot to do during the year uh, in between TSO tours. So. I started buying a bunch of properties, you know, houses that needed, you know, somebody to swing a hammer on and fix up, blah, 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 blah. And I was, you know, I have this saying that I live by. It's like, I don't really trust anybody who can't swing a hammer or a spatula.
2: <laughs> so if okay. you didn't do
1: construction or you weren't like, you know, a busboy in a restaurant, hmm, I'm a little leery, but anyway. <laughs> so, you know, I'd find like this dilapidated house. And say, hey, you know, why don't we fix this house up? And I want to turn this one into a studio, like a mini Bearsville,
2: mm-hmm. you know,
1: which was like the original studio upstate New York that you can record at, and it had band living accommodations. So I found this like really disgusting house, and I spent about a good eight nine months working on it. And I basically turned it into a control room, or a live room. There was a kitchen, a living room, a listening area, a piano room, just like this cute little studio. And it had a full kitchen, so like if she was in doing a mix or something like that, I'd be sitting there, you know, cooking dinner for everybody. Okay. and it just became like a really fun hang we work all day and, you know, then a couple bottles of wine would get cracked. You know, I'd be in the kitchen there making whatever I'd be making. We'd listen to the day's work. It sounds good. Let's work on this tomorrow it, Then lock the door and go home. And I always like going to work in a different location than where I live. You know what I mean? And that studio's still there. It's this little place. I think she calls it the Moose Lodge.
0: Okay. On YouTube, people can find clips of you, front porch concert kind of thing, you, Chloe Lowry, mm-hmm. and uh, this is uh, the Milford, Oh, sometimes it's the September Fest, sometimes it's the Music Fest, but okay, so yeah. this is where that location then comes from. On Doyle's Brunch, who's Doyle, by the way?
1: Doyle's, it was a bar restaurant outside of Boston where Jane lived for years. She was a waitress there okay. when she was just after college, and it was a very, very famous political hang Like the Kennedys used to hang there, you know, or like any of the Boston aristocracy would like go there. And Jane's always had a fascination with the Irish culture, Ireland, and especially the the community of Boston, very Irish. Yeah. And she just was kind of like telling a story about her time, you know, musically telling a story about her time in this place, Doyle's, a lot of the relationships that she had made, friends that she had met, conversations, you know, she was privy to, things like that. So it's basically like a broad stroke overview of that part of her life, I should say.
0: All right. Now, on Doyle's Brunch, in addition to Riders on the Storm, and again, uh, we'll get to that one in just a sec, but first, in the jazz world, I love Horace Silver enough that when I saw Lonely Woman, I hoped that it would indeed be the tune from Song for My Father, Mid-60s, maybe on Blue Note, and yeah, sure enough, that's what it was, beautiful beautiful take on that and just uh, I don't know if I just had any questions about that other than just stating and recognition for Horace Silver you know people know Basie and people know Ellington and some of those but not necessarily Silver so uh, some of the Which amongst is the messengers
1: yeah and the more time goes on the more a lot of these people are going to kind of fade out and you know it's just ah. yeah yep. it is what it is you know but in that respect you know again wonderful talent
0: yeah at one point they were the jazz messengers and now some of them are fading away
1: yeah, yeah.
0: Okay, Riders on the Storm, uh, you mentioned this one a year or two back. Wasn't Jane just a bit uh, hesitant at first on doing a Doors tune?
1: Hesitant? No. She had her heels dug in, hell no, we're not doing this. Yeah, there was no middle ground with her, <laughs> you know? And I just said, listen, you got your heels dug in? No, I got my heels dug in, yes. So we're gonna do this, and if it comes out poorly or you don't like it at the end, throw it in the garbage I said but in my heart of hearts absolutely believe that this is gonna be an important thing to do so there was a musical trust both ways and she decided to at least trust my instincts on let's bring it to life and see what happens and that was the song that caused a minor lightning strike, but a lightning strike anyway, that got her all over the radio, you know, charted I think in the top forty and Billboard's, you know, smooth jazz chart when they still had a smooth jazz chart, you know. Mm-hmm. And brought her to the attention of Chris Boddy, who was I think he was, oh, wow. uh, I think he was the program director of was the smooth jazz station in New York City. And he started playing that, very similar to the TSO story. You know, once the station in New York starts spinning something, all the other stations start paying attention to it, and that brought her and her work to a much greater audience. And I get the privilege of saying, I told you so.
0: (laughs) You, by the way, make it yours from the get-go, and it's with such a simple statement or maybe choice. We don't get the same cadence, let's say. We don't get riders on the storm, but we get riders on the storm. It's such a subtle pause and maybe just hanging on a bit, but the point of this, is this a case of you trying actively to put your own stamp on it, or is this just truly in your head, how you felt at that moment? I think the latter.
1: Yeah, absolutely, 100% the latter of those two. Paul O'Neill, all things in my life come back to Paul. So, back in the early days of TSO, we would perform on QVC. We'd put a record out, and Paul's like, Come on, you know, we got friends at QVC. Let's go perform, and we'll sell a bunch of records. and It'd be a good way to launch the season. I'm like, All right, cool. And one of these performances ended up being on my birthday, whatever year this would have been. And I remember kicking him scream and, and said, Dude, I don't want to go to QVC at like 3 o'clock in the morning. It's my birthday. Stop it. He goes, Please. And I'm like, oh, Fine. And he was kind enough to, you know, give me a birthday present, which was a Brian May guitar.
0: Oh Um, my God.
1: Yeah, not Brian May's guitar, but I think the company was called Burns, came out with the Brian May model. He knew I was such a huge Brian May fan and I walked in and he handed it to me and I'm like, dude, really? All right, thank you. I love you. And the guitar has a very, 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 very interesting sound. The tremolo on it and the different configurations and switches with the pickups and all this stuff. I remember that was the guitar I had on my lap when we started recording Riders on the Storm. And I just remember, I said roll tape and I started playing and that's kind of what came out of my hands. It probably partly inspired by what a beautiful tone this guitar had, a unique tone, and kind of very strange, and it was like a real trippy thing, and that's how I played it. Wow. Everything goes back to Paul (laughs) O'Neill. Yeah,
0: it seems too. thing about Sabotage, I had a hard time tracking this one down. It's a beautiful acoustic number listed under Sabotage called Voyage. Uh-huh. And it, Please correct me, but it seems to have not only not been on an album, but it was more like a bonus track on a single, something to that effect?
1: It was a bonus track on a Japanese release of something. <laughs> I don't recall. You're talking about like the solo acoustic piece,
0: right? Yes, indeed.
1: That was something that Paul... God, I'm trying to think of when we would have done that. That was probably in the wake of Magellan Sessions, which was the second record I was involved with in Sava, which was probably right after the Christmas Eve on the Stories album, if I got my timeline straight. Anyway, but again, one of the reasons why Paul and I had such an incredible relationship and not really patting myself on the back, but mm-hmm. I had a lot more going on with different guitars, different instruments in my lap than the average guitar hero at the time. You know what I mean? I was never that concerned with being a shredder. I was concerned to try to help create soundtracks and underscoring for songs, so on and so forth. Sure. So one of the things that Paul found out was when we were doing the Christmas Eve and the Stories Album, he's like, could you give me like an acoustic guitar version of said Christmas song? I don't off the top of my head, I don't remember which one it would have been. And I remember sitting down, and again, going back to Joe Pass, you know, and my education in that style of playing, I would come up with these chord melodies that he would just look at, he goes, I love this, you know. And he discovered that, you know, I was a pretty good acoustic guitar player and we both kind of cut our teeth in the wine and cheese circuit in the 70s in the new york area playing like cat stevens and neil young songs and jim croce and all that kind of stuff cool. and i love the way the acoustic guitar sounds so anyway the long and the short of it is the voyage was a piece of music that i was just kind of noodling around with he's like what's that i said i'm not really sure i said why don't we just you know kind of kick it around and he wanted to have that represented he, he was a huge fan of that he liked that piece of music a lot
0: gotcha You tend to play with a pick. I've yet to see you doing much fingerstyle, even when it may sound like it. Like, when we're going into Old City Bar, I believe you're picking that, if I'm not mistaken.
1: Well, on the album version of Old City Bar, that's Paul playing the main acoustic guitar part. Ah. And then I did all the, uh, like, the 12-string guitars and the mandolin parts and all the swells that are kind of well-hidden, but they had a certain atmosphere to that song. But, you know, I had a classical guitar teacher, um when I was younger, and that was pretty much short-lived because I was working at a deli at the time, and I sliced off part of my thumb on the meat slicer. Oh. Ooh. And, and so that kind of shot my classical chops in the head. Uh, but I did develop a hybrid style of doing it where I will use the pick and my middle finger to s- simulate that I'm finger-picking. It works pretty good. It was kind of like out of necessity. You know? Oh,
0: I see. Wow. Oh, yeah. totally. and
1: I You know, I mean, I remember digging into... Um, uh, all these different uh, classical books and being real excited about exploring that uh, but it really never came to life so yeah I kind of developed this other way of doing it where it sounds like it it's, I'm never going to be a classical guitar player or a flamenco player in any way but I can get my way around to it if you listen to there's a song on the Nightcastle record called Embers and that would be a really really good example of that hybrid style of guitar playing
0: I just have to say before we wrap up you had a birthday sometime between our previous conversation about TSO and this one, so just sometime in the last week and a half or so. So a, a happy birthday, Al.
1: Thank you so much sixty one. Who would have thunk?
0: I hope to keep on continuing until they bring you out in a chair like Johnny Winter. It's just still playing, and I really really
1: hope. For that. You know, I did that once, I'm gonna try not to do that again. i remember busted my leg at a show in oh eight and I did that whole tour in a wheelchair. And that wasn't fun. So I tell you what, I mean, I try to always stay in great shape and I work out a lot. I always want to like stand down, stay center. And if I can't do that, then it's time to maybe bring up like one of the younger kids to do the job. Because, you know, I don't ever want to be wheeled out and play. You know, the show is much more important than me being there. I'd always like to be there. I have no intentions on never not doing it. But if ever the day comes where I can't just really do my job, you know, and become that 14-year-old every time the house lights go off, you know, then
0: it's time to walk away. Wow. Didn't that injury, by the way, come about from you trying to do a real, like, rock star, superhero kind of jump and landing and continue to play yep. and
1: Yeah, I jumped off a riser like a 24-year-old and remembered in <laughs> midair that I'm like 44. <laughs> and I remember, like, do you ever, like, come down, like, the steps in your house or wherever, and, like, you missed the last step? And i like, wait, where's the ground? Crack out. Oh, but that hurt? Oh, yeah. Well, in midair, you know, I kind of extended my leg thinking that, okay, here's the platform I'm jumping down to, and it wasn't there. And, I don't know, two feet later, it was, and my leg was hyperextended, and <sighs> I broke my bone and snapped my ACL. In the middle of a good guitar solo and didn't drop a note. (laughs) With Paul O'Neill at the front of the house going, uh, what happened? You know, and I remember just sitting down feeling like I got hit in the knee with a sledgehammer. I finished the song and the stage lights went down, and when I went to stand up to walk off stage, I collapsed because I had Mm. no ACL left. I was like, ooh, and then the pain kicked in. I was like, okay, this sucks. Wow. Yeah. So going back to, you know, I remember seeing B.B. King come out in a wheelchair, and it was the most beautiful thing because he just sat there and he sang and he played because people were there to see B.B. King or Johnny Winter, similar scenario, you know. I know Phil Collins physically can't sit behind the drums any longer, but it doesn't matter. People are there to see, you know, B.B. or Johnny Winter or Phil Collins. With TSO, people are there to celebrate Paul's stories, and I'm okay with that position in the food chain. I've helped Paul bring it to life. I've done my part. I will still be his musical director and then, you know, carry on his legacy. But the show is the star of this one, you know? And I love that fact. I love that this will live long past all of us. You know, at least that's what the plan is. And we'll see what happens.
2: No life so short it can't turn around. You can't spend your life
0: Your it's not who I am But I know that it's all that you see I think a beautiful way to close out based on what you were just talking about last year after the initial Ghost of Christmas Eve story we got the and more section of the show and I can't tell you how excited I was to get Not What You See Just to explain this for folks, this is the closing track on the initial version of the Sabotage release, Dead Winter Dead, the album which led to Trans-Siberian Orchestra. So my question for you is, is Not What You See going to remain in the lineup? Or (laughs) is this, hey, I'll find out in Omaha?
1: No, 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 it won't be. That song, we have a portion of the show that is a dedication song to Paul. Mm -hmm. And every year we think of just different songs that would really be important. Because I'll never go through a show without bringing attention to the gentleman who created the whole thing, you know. Yeah. And uh, over the, you know, over the years, and there was always a song that. Uh, what really started this was Paul would come out every year, not every show, but he certainly once or twice during the course of the tour, he'd come out and visit with me, and he'd come out and play an acoustic piece with whomever, hmm. you know. And and he enjoyed doing that, and it was wonderful for the folks in the audience to, to meet and see in person the dude responsible for this thing, you know. And then when he passed, we wanted to, you know, pay tribute to that tradition that he had established and let's kind of like dig around and see what songs we may want to think about doing. So it's kind of a funny story because prior to last year's tour, one of my students, who's a huge Saba fan as well, wanted me to teach him the guitar soul and not what you see. And- I don't know that I've listened to the song since we recorded it, to be honest with you, you know? Oh, wow. And I'm like, wow, what a beautiful melody, what a beautiful song, you know? I mean, listen, life kicks in and just, you know, I don't have a chance to really sit down and listen to it too much. But anyway, I remember saying, you know, if I strip this down, acoustic guitar, piano, maybe, you know, a nice string arrangement, maybe some Ray Cooper-esque percussion going on, I think this would be a really cool thing. And I remember working on it with Oliva. And both of us go, yeah, this is a beautiful moment to dedicate to Paul. The lyric had a lot to do with it, you know, the mood of the song, the choir. The whole thing was just so Paul O'Neill. So, you know, that I was really proud of that. And, you know, we're looking at new ones for this year. Okay. But, you know, who knows? Maybe we'll do that one again one year. I don't know.
0: Okay, beautiful. Great way to wrap there. And, gosh, with the time there, we've went way beyond what I was even hoping for. And uh, between you and I. I love
1: talking to you, dude. I enjoy all conversations. So don't ever worry about the clock with me. We're good.
0: That is phenomenal. Al, thank you so so much and I don't know what to say other than I, I will be there in Ontario when you're in, in early December, December two, I believe it is.
1: Yeah, well I can't wait for that. And listen, if COVID doesn't kinda of put a kibosh on being social, I'd love to, you know, just shake hands and sit down for five minutes in person. I really look forward to that. And if COVID's gonna, you know, be a pain in the neck, then you know, we'll just continue on our conversations and we'll have a coffee or a scotch one day together. I look forward to that.
0: Yeah, I look forward to no shaking worries. your hand in person at some point soon. I do as
1: well, my friend. Hey, listen, thanks so much for the time today. Have a great rest of your day. Respective. You. I love talking to you, so I'll talk to you soon
0: again. Thanks a bunch, Al. It's been Music in Conversation with Al Petrelli in celebration of KVC Arts number 500. Generally, my conversations with him are dominated by Trans-Siberian Orchestra with just a glimpse at one aspect or another of his career beyond TSO. Tonight, pretty much the reverse of that, with so much to look at in his career, and some really sounds quite different from his work with TSO. Thanks again to Al for agreeing to do this and for the extended amount of time he gave me. And thanks again to Alan Rommelfanger for setting it up. Here at KVCR, thanks to Lillian Vasquez, Rick Dulock, Sharina Wad, and Tony Lopez. Find many past Arts programs via podcast through iTunes, NPR One, Spotify, and Google Play. And more still at kvcrnews.org/slash arts. I'm David Fleming. Thanks for joining me in celebration of KVC Arts number 500. Thanks for listening and for your support.